0: This week's All-American Chapel Protestant Service Podcast Sermon will be given by Chaplain Patrick Lime.
1: Worshiping Jesus during this past week. So we have all the candles lit, the Christ candle in the center. We have baby Jesus in the manger scene. The wise men still about 1,500 or so miles away. Starting their journey, about a two-year journey. And next Sunday, we're going to celebrate Communion but Sunday school is not gonna start back yet. It's gonna start back on the 27th of January. And I was chatting with the team beforehand as to why do we wait until the 27th of January to start back child, uh, children's church and, and Sunday school and we, we didn't really know. Uh, it's a tradition, perhaps, that the Christmas break, there's a, there's a goodly break between Sunday school starting back up, as is in the summer, a break. And in the 82nd, we have a lot of traditions. And we don't always know what those traditions are, but it's important to know what what we do and why we do it. So we are gonna have some team meetings to figure out why, why do we wait for Sunday school to start back up. But the 27th is when it's gonna be this year. Now we're gonna start looking at doctrine because it's important for us to know why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. So next Sunday will be our first Sunday of the Doctrine Series, which is going to go for about three months. We're going to look at a number of different categories of what we believe and why we believe we do. It's very, very important. So this morning, Brother Lime is going to bring our message. We are in the Christmas season. There are 12 days in the Christmas season. And I I did a little bit of research on that. Why do we have 12 days of christmas before epiphany now epiphany we know is the going out the first time that the gospel was given to a gentile a non-jew in scripture when the magi came that about two years later first time in scripture is when we recognize the word of god going forth next sunday but there are 12 days between christmas and epiphany And did a little bit of reading, reading and research this is not exhaustive you can't believe everything you read unless it's in Scripture. If it's in Bible, yes, you can believe it. And everything that you, you see and read other, other places isn't always the case. But here are the 12 days of Christmas and what each one historically has meant. Some of this going back to about the 4th century Christianity. Anything that was coming up after the 17th century, I, I did not include that because three, 400 years wasn't quite enough. So, on the 25th, obviously, we worship Jesus' birth, the first day of Christmas. The second day we call Boxing Day, which is St. Stephen's Day. St. Stephen, Stephen was the first martyr in Scripture. The third day of Christmas recognizes St. John the Apostle. The fourth day was the Feast of Holy Innocence, when King Herod killed the babies two years and younger. That was identified off of the time that the Magi, the wise men, saw the star. So the babies in Bethlehem that were killed is the feast of the holy innocence. The fifth day of Christmas recognized Saint Thomas Becket. Now Thomas Becket in England was going against the, the king. That the authority of Scripture comes from God and not the King of England. And he was he was killed. The sixth day of Christmas was Saint Egwin of Worcester, I'm not gonna get into the research of the details of of some of these. On the seventh day of Christmas, that is going to be New Year's Eve. You might hear New Year's Eve sometimes called Hogman or Sylvester. Sylvester was was Pope Sylvester the first in fourth century Christianity. And it was also interesting to note that on Christmas Eve, as it falls on a Sunday, or when it falls on a Sunday, the Pope has, not the Pope, the King of England had people go out and practice archery in order to bolster the archers. Uh, just a piece of trivia. Then the eighth day of Christmas recognizes Mary, the mother of Jesus. The ninth day, St. Basil and St. Gregory of Nazianzen. The tenth day of Christmas, the feast of the holy name of Jesus, when Jesus went to the temple and was named on the, circumcised and named on the eighth day. The, um, which you would think tradition would have that on the eighth day of Christmas, not the 10th, the but such is life. The 11th day, St. Simon Stylitis, he lived 37 years on a pedestal with a platform, uh, dedicating himself to the Lord. The 12th day of Christmas is Epiphany Eve. It is also called the 12th night. William Shakespeare wrote a play on the 12th night. And many other traditions came out of this, some of which were much more lascivious than living on a pedestal for 12 years. I'll leave that to your your research. And then is Epiphany on the 13th day. So I, I read you these just to let you know that we need to understand why we do what we do. 12 days of Christmas, why do we have 12 days? Scripture doesn't say for 12 days you'll recognize Christmas and then we'll move into the season of Epiphany. But we're going to move into doctrine, and we're going to start looking at why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe, or else we're going to be plowing through life, having uh, six weeks off from Sunday school and not knowing eight weeks off from Sunday school and not knowing why we're doing that. Okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Jesus Christ, you are our reason for everything. Thank you, God, for being our God, for loving us, for dying for us, for saving us, raising from the dead, to give us our blessed hope to forever be with you. This morning, if anyone is here who does not know you, Lord, let this morning be the time that their heart will be stirred and they will answer your call. Lord, help us to know what we believe, to be what you want us to know through Scripture. And let us honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Thank you, Praise Team. And good morning, Chapel. My name is Chaplain Patrick Lyman. It is my privilege this morning to bring the message following Jesus beyond Christmas or following Jesus into the new year. But first, let me wish you a Merry Christmas. Now, I know that uh, as we want to extend this season into January, for the full 12 days, many are returning off of their leave. Others will follow, and soon we will undecorate the chapel, our homes, and return to life as normal, though maybe a little bit colder. This is a time of year when many begin to feel down, perhaps a case of the post-Christmas blues, and find themselves in need of a little comfort. Today in our text, Jesus is doing just that. Let me describe the scene for us. He's at the table with his disciples, having already predicted his death and after they broke bread, Jesus, hours away from his crucifixion, takes the time to impart final teachings, much of which they won't understand until his resurrection. And comforts them consider that Jesus fully God though his disciples grasp on this is foggy at best and yet fully man is hours away from his own violent death which he knows all about and spends this time comforting his friends he says I will not abandon you qualifying it by connecting love to obedience now, even in the time of Jesus, Jews would gather for the new year and give offerings for the Day of Atonement and strive towards purity out of obedience. We know today that Jesus was our atonement, but what I really want to talk about are those goals, our resolutions, if you will. Though we have been set free of our bondage to sin, Jesus having fulfilled the law, we are told if you remember, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, as we prepare to close this year and as you spend time with loved ones, I know that many choose to reflect on their past year, their relationships, their accomplishments, opportunities that were not pursued and set goals for the next year. Studies show, however, that only somewhere around 8% of resolutions are kept and only 10% of resolutions even make it out of January. With odds like that, there's no wonder why many have forsaken the tradition of making them all together. But we all do it. Maybe it's within the secrecy of our own heart. Maybe it's a reminder on your cell phone calendar and though we may call them something different or even make them between Januaries, we still have goals. So maybe they're not scribbled down on a piece of paper entitled resolutions, if they're even scribbled down at all. But I wonder what yours are. I wonder what God's are for us. Is is that a biblical thing? Does God have resolutions for us? Well, not really. Resolutions are entirely our own, they're a reflection of our will but it always works out if our will, if our resolutions are aligned with what we're told to do. So if you've got your Bibles open, what is it that we're told to do in this passage? What revelation is it that Jesus chose to tell his disciples hours before his death? And what is it that John chose to include in his gospel so that generations of believers to come would have his instructions towards righteousness? It isn't paradigm shifting in that it's new. Rather, it's, it's being underscored, it's being circled, it's being highlighted and followed with exclamation points. It's that love is obedience. Our first verse, John 14, 15, states that if you love me, keep my commands. It's echoed three times in verses 21, 23, and 24. So, out of nine verses, it's said four times. The command is obey. Should you resolve to obey, we're promised something. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Love is obedience by his Holy Spirit. As Jesus makes these promises to his disciples, I want you to notice what he's doing. John wants you to notice. He draws attention to it. He draws a very clear distinction between the world and his disciples. What you are going to receive, he says, and and we're included in this too, what we're going to receive, what we're being offered if we're obedient, what we will receive is not for the world. This is not for everybody. Verse 17 continues. It says, The Spirit of truth... The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. John records this three times. Here in verse 17, in verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And verse 22, your pew Bibles say why, but other translations say say, how? How is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not the world? You see, the predominant understanding of messianic prophecy at this time was that the the kingdom would arrive in undeniable and irresistible splendor. I wonder why they were confused. Judas, not the Judas who uh, is going to betray Jesus. He has already left the table. But Judas... He was thinking cosmologically. He is conceptualizing the visible, uh, literal world. Jesus says, I'm not showing myself to the world. I'm showing myself to you. That's what he means when he replies in verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our homes with them. Jesus is drawing contrast here. Not between anything in the visible world, but between the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. This is also where the invitation is extended to the generations, to us. So, does God have resolutions for us? K- kind of. Allow me to illustrate this from uh, my own life experiences. Maybe a few of you can relate. But first, let me confess, I have not always been very obedient. In fact, before realizing my call to ministry, I had no intentions of going beyond high school. Though I was on several of the dean's list, I was never on the dean's list, the the good one. And I'm convinced that I may have even been passed on a couple of occasions so that my teachers would not have to endure another year. Maybe you can remember a time in your life when you needed a little course correction, hopefully just a nudge in the right direction, or maybe, as in my case, you needed to go an entirely different direction. But if your childhood was anything like mine, you didn't like to do homework. Now, my approach to avoiding it wasn't that crafty. I just didn't do it. My parents must have thought that the school system was so progressive that just didn't have any. They would ask, I would lie, and we went on and on. I got to do the fun stuff that I wanted, and I skipped out on the not-so-fun stuff. There was only one problem. This year in particular, I found myself in the classroom of a teacher who cared about me. One night, my teacher called my mother. You see, apparently, I was failing. They, she asked my parents why I wasn't doing my homework, and this, of course, exposed my disobedience. You know, there's a proverb, Proverbs 12.1, in fact, and it says, whoever hates correction is stupid. Go ahead, see, it's in your Bibles. You see, my will wasn't aligned with the expectations of my teacher. I had resolved to have fun, but fun isn't a resolution. It's a consequence, an end state, if you will. Rather, uh, a resolution is a commitment. A fulfilled commitment has a consequence. But when that commitment or resolution uh, is not aligned with the will of whoever has commissioned you, you will likely not enjoy that consequence. So, look again with this in mind at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Continuing in verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them verse 23 anyone who loves me will obey my teaching my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them this sounds transactional doesn't it keep in mind we're only responding to God's love God's grace and our obedience is his glory not our own we still have done nothing whatever good we muster is already his and it's a reflection of he whose image in which we're created. That's deep. And as much as I'd like to dissect that, this sermon is not about that. Come back next week as we start a new series on what we believe matters, led by Chaplain Wilson. We'll go into that. But I want to be clear. John three sixteen still very much applies. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe will not perish but have eternal life. Correct. That is factual. That's what I believe. That's what John wrote. It's true. But there is more, much more. That's not the point here. This is an offer, an offer to have a deeper relationship, a personal relationship, an intimate one and a purposeful one that's not offered to the rest of the world if we resolve to be obedient John three sixteen is the only reason we're saved it is the why because he first loved us now what that's what Jesus is talking about in this text it's why John kept writing it was a wonderful chapter but this passage is about the what or the what now if you will and that what is that love is a command. The how is His Holy Spirit. That's what this text is. Keep that in perspective. Jesus is giving His guidance to His disciples. He tells them He is leaving them. And this is their instruction for when He's gone. It's instruction for us, too. The other Gospels, they cover the Last Supper in several verses. John, however, dedicates four chapters to it. Jesus is headed to the cross, and judging by the questions posed by his disciples, they clearly aren't understanding the fullness of his final revelations. This is one reason that if we're following Jesus on this side of the cross, we need to trust his Holy Spirit to guide us. The Spirit tells us, uh, it, I'm sorry, the Spirit, Jesus tells us, is going to help us to understand It's described here as the spirit of truth, that he's a counselor and an advocate. So the Holy Spirit is our link to a personal relationship with God because he's leaving and, in fact, has left, and the Spirit is our guide. The Spirit is also our strength. Leading up to this passage, Jesus says, those who believe in me will do even greater works than I did, and that he who... uh, He who will do whatever, and that Jesus will do whatever you ask in his name. Now, these are the works that Jesus describes as works of the Father who is in him. And in the same way, only because he who dwells in us are we able to do greater works. This is also speaking collectively about the the ministry uh, of the generations that will extend the range and the, the impact of his work. But this really is to us we are we are not simply reading a a history book that describes something that happened long ago this is an invitation this is for you so we are enabled to do god's work by him it's not transactional because it's not even us it's the spirit within us through love he is god he has chosen us already And we respond by making Him our Lord. If we love Him, we will keep His commands. And then we are capable of bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance. Then we are capable of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I said in the beginning that this isn't paradigm shifting. We're still at the table, the Last Supper, and for many of his disciples, the last time they will see him before his crucifixion. In the last chapter, Jesus cut a new covenant in which he declared a new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you. This is how he says that everybody will know that you are my disciples. But it isn't new. Even before the ministry of Jesus on earth, God spoke to Israel, recorded in Leviticus, saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly, if we are the heirs of Abraham, it was said in Genesis that all the nations on earth would be blessed through us. Clearly, the newness of this command to love is not in the command itself. What is new here, what we lacked in the past ever since we gained the knowledge of good and evil, was the capacity to be obedient to His Word, to His commands. We were given a way to remain God's people. We were given means to arbitrate our disobedience. But what is new here is the Spirit. If we love Jesus, which is the first step, we can love Him and not obey. That's a thing. That's where we've fallen short in the past, But if we love Him and respond in obedience, we're promised the Spirit, who will then empower obedience to His Word. This is why Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. There's an expression, and it goes, to to err is human, to forgive is divine. It does not say that to err is to be human. To err is a human thing but that's not a summation of our existence. Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. If to err is what it means to be human, if that's our desire or our design and God's intent for humanity, then Jesus was something else. Jesus was a reminder of our identity. He recommissioned us for obedience and offers us the means necessary, His Holy Spirit. As we discovered before, this is a different type. This is a different kind of relationship, a deeper one, a personal one, and one much more intimate. It's not the love offering to the world as described in chapter 3. That was the invitation. That was the atonement, the propitiation of our sin, Jesus in our place. With this love, with obedience, we are promised... In verse 23, that God will come to us and make His home with us. We're talking about indwelling. In Ephesians, we're told if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it is, our, it, it, it is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. If you have His Spirit, your inheritance is sealed. What better news is there? That's literally the euangelion, the, the term from which gospel is derived, the word that means good news. Now it wasn't long after my intervention as a, as a young student that I realized that being obedient really did pay off. I wanted to have fun, but that isn't a resolution as we discovered, that's a consequence. Instead of doing my homework in the evenings when all the other students were doing theirs, I, I missed out on that consequence. They, they dedicated themselves to the will of our teacher. Now, I did enjoy the fruits of my labor, but in that case, uh, not so much fun. There, there was a consequence. My teacher and mother, uh, they worked out a plan uh, or a deal where I could pass, but I would have to fully commit myself to their will. I forfeited my recess for the rest of the year where I would complete all the assignments that I never had. When I was a young student and I encountered adversity, I just gave up. I saw, or at least I thought I saw, everyone else around me doing well, and I resigned to myself. I thought, well, maybe maybe I am stupid, but that's a misuse of that particular word. Remember the proverb that says, whoever whoever hates correction is stupid. That's the appropriate use, not because it's what's in the Bible. It it does say that. But that's what it's called when somebody ignores rebuke. God disciplines us. We're told time and time again in both the Old and New Testament, because He loves us. It's for our good. Another proverb, but not a biblical one, says that the successful student is not the one who gets his work done with ease, but the one who persists in his work despite frustration and failure. It's about endurance through adversity. Only a fulfilled commitment has a consequence, and the key to that uh, consequence is is given to us in in the spirit if we obey him. Will God make you do it? No, He, he proved that in the garden. Now, he did not abandon Adam and Eve, but should you choose not to align your will with His, you are abandoning Him and His ways, and His decrees, and His ordinances, and His desire for your life, which is salvation, grace, fellowship, and finally His rest. So what is it that God has for us? What has this got to do with us? How do we apply it in our lives today? As you take down your Christmas decorations, make sure you don't leave Jesus in the manger of your own heart. If you leave him in the manger, he remains a babe. If our theology remains as such, we are worthy of rebuke. Paul issues such a rebuke in his first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 say, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Of all the lessons we, le- we learn from Jesus, none is more clear and powerful than the lesson of obedience. His example teaches us not only why obedience is important, but also how we can be obedient. Jesus displayed his obedience in order that he fulfill all righteousness. He observed the Sabbath even from a young age. Luke 2 captures him being both obedient to his heavenly father and his earthly parents. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. It was clear in the garden that he had reservations. He had full knowledge of what was about to take place, yet he said... Not as I will, but as you will. Brothers and sisters, All-American Chapel, this is the work of the Spirit. Jesus insists three times in this gospel alone, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And now he says it again in our final verse, proclaiming as he heads to the cross, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teachings. The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So, what did this last year look like for you? With any luck. It was full of obedience and spirituality, but luck doesn't have a thing to do with it. Those who are successful in this way do it on purpose. Obedience is a commitment. It's intentional. My hope for you is that you enjoyed some recess by aligning your priorities with God's expectation of you. As you make your New Year's resolutions, and I pray we do better than 92% of people, but I know by the Spirit that we can, ask yourself what you're doing in these areas. Do some soul searching and ask yourself in all honesty, how are you being obedient in home, at home? In your workplace? And and how are you relying on the Spirit? Is your love for Jesus apparent in your life? If it's not, that's okay. There's time to make some changes. Though Jesus has gone away into heaven, He has not gone away. He is with us, and He will be with us, and He will never abandon us. Wherever this New Year's takes you, in your career, in your travels, or in your walk with Christ, don't forget to keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for the Spirit. Pursue Jesus in the Scriptures. Gather in fellowship with other believers and do it often. This would be a great time to commit yourselves to some spiritual disciplines. The book of James is a great place to start. It's very short, but it's very purposeful. And that's what we're really being called to in this passage today. Belief was the invitation. Obedience is where the rubber meets the road. Whatever you love, you will pursue. Jesus Jesus has already made his expectations clear. If you love me, keep my commands. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, would you keep us? Lord, would you stir in our hearts? Lord, we thank you for your invitation. Lord, give us the power today and in this new year. Give us the capacity for obedience to your word. Lord, this is our prayer for this chapel. This is our prayer within our units. Lord, help us to be obedient everywhere this new year takes us. Lord, give us the power to keep our resolutions and be with us forever. That the glory would be yours. It is in your holy name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.
1: That was this week's
0: All-American Chapel Protestant Service podcast. Please tune in for next week's
1: podcast.